Hello, I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom with our host, the Reverend Joseph Hinchy and Lisa Fertini Campbell. Now here's Lisa. Praise be Jesus Christ. Now and forever. Welcome everyone. This is Lisa Fortini Campbell here with the Reverend Joseph Henshi of the Congregation of the Sacred Stigmata here to talk uh, once more about the healing wounds of Christ. So welcome again, Father. Thank you, Lisa. Nice to be with you. Well, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Alleluia. Alleluia. Well, Father, where are you going to take us today in well, your reflection? We are, as you know, discussing and pondering, I hope at some depth, biblically and theologically and from the sacred tradition, the healing wounds of Jesus Christ. These seem to peak in John 19 and 20 with the wounded side of Christ. The three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus died, and the temple veil mysteriously gets torn. That's right. But in John's gospel, when Jesus died, the soldiers come to him, seeing he has already died, opened his side. Mm-hmm. Now, in the long history of the church of 2,000 plus years, there's very little study of the torn veil. There's some, but very little. But the study in mystical and spiritual theology of the wound in the side in sacramentology, in dogma, is endless. And we're just presenting biblically how the authors speak of this in the New Testament. Actually, the wounded side is found in John uh, 19, that the soldier opened the side, pierced his side, and blood and water poured out. And this is a witness, this is the testimony of an eyewitness. And then that appears again in the, in the uh, New Testament, in the Senegal room, on Easter night, Jesus showed his five wounds, and he showed his hands and his feet and his side, and said, as the Father sent me, I now send you. But, much to our surprise, Hebrews 6, 9, and 10 speaks voluminously about the wounded side and offers us a diverse picture of what the sanctuary looked like in the olden days. Now maybe we could understand by remembering since Vatican II how our altars had changed. Well, that's 50, 60 years ago. Imagine the changes from the first temple way back in the time of David and Solomon, 1,000 years before Christ, to now, or to the second uh, temple which took place in 587 or thereafter, which was then destroyed when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem around the year 70. So there were changes, but there is this mysterious contemplation of the appurtenances of this inner sanctuary. And we find out there were two compartments. There was the holies, where the priests would go for their ordinary services, making sure the candles were lit, the perpetual lamp, making sure the incense smoke continually rose heavenward. But then there was the Holy of Holies, which was once the resting place of the old Ark of the Covenant, which seems to have been some kind of a chest or a a box 
in which the original commandments were kept and which disappeared, as we read in Ezekiel, with the glory of God disappearing over the eastern horizon when Jerusalem was destroyed uh, by the Babylonians, beginning the Babylonian captivity. It's an abundant revelation. I think we've already spent a number of conferences on this wounded side, particularly as presented by Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 9, and 10. If you read those chapters, you'll find an, an abundant description. And so, as you've been describing all of this, the, the mystery of this wounded side, the comparison between the torn temple veil and the torn side of Christ himself, you've been exploring, but ultimately we care about this because the barrier that prevented us, ordinary people, from touching and accessing the sanctuary of God mm. is now in the death of Christ mm. opened up, wide, wide open. open. And and the message is, come on in. That's right. And the symbol, of course, is when the priest tore his garments, same verb, or when the skies were torn open and the Lord spoke to, this is my beloved son. So, it is a very rich, a very rich biblical theme. Then, of course, the torn temple veil. The world of the past is gone. That old time liturgy is past, and now it's the liturgy of the open side of Christ. Yes, and then, you know, we think about sometimes other symbols that bring the same idea to mind. When you look at a gloomy, cloudy day, and then there's just this tiny opening in the clouds, mm. and thrusting through it is this beautiful sunbeam that hits the ground mm. and and that's a another symbol of the, kind mm. of the same idea isn't it and even day night and day mm. when night gives way as the watchman says in psalm 130 i look to the east for the first streaks of the coming dawn the, the, mm. the night watchman so that's where we are now so so we'll begin with a prayer and you'll take mm. us on to right. the next aspect of in this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this, this day, day our daily, daily bread. And, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Mary, Mother of our Savior. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So to begin this uh, conference, I'd like to quote again Hebrews 9, 1 to 5. The first covenant had its laws governing worship and its sanctuary, a sanctuary on this earth. There was a tent which had two compartments. The first, which the lamp, in which the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves were kept, and this was called a holy place. But then the second veil, an innermost part, was called the Holy of Holies, to which belonged the gold altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant plated all over with gold, and in this were kept the gold jar containing the manna, remnants of the manna of the desert, Aaron's branch or, or his crozier, that grew buds in the stone tablets of the covenant. These were relics of Exodus. And on top of all this was the throne of mercy, outspread over it with the glorious cherubs. This is not the time to go into any further detail about this. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what the experts tell us is there are slightly different descriptions of the tent in the desert, the tent of meeting, 
And then, of course, the Temple of Solomon on the top of the Mount Horeb, uh, Mount Moriah, it seems, where Isaac offered his son. So the symbolism is almost uh, impossible to coordinate. But anyway, there are several descriptions here all intermingled. There are many serious studies in Jewish uh, biblical interpretation of the structure of the inner workings of the ancient temples and what they were meant. So let's look at the ideas here. In these five verses, they're dynamite. Every one of these words explodes under our feet into a myriad of possible uh, of possible ideas. There are two central ideas held over from Hebrews 8. The priestly ministry now exercised by Jesus in heaven. This is a very strange thing to say, but liturgia, liturgy in the Greek word, is the root of where we get orgy. Is that right? And what it means is a very joyful, full human expression, and sacramentally, an orgy could be a sacred matter, but it usually is reserved in our English language. But it's the same word, a great exultant uh, explosion of happiness and goodness and so on, and a sense of belonging and all that. And then the New Covenant. So the New Liturgy, the New Covenant, are successively then addressed here in in Hebrews 9, from 1 to 28. The, The Liturgy is described, Hebrews 9, 1 to 14, and this is their vision of heaven. Mm-hmm. We will be attending this vision, so pay attention. Yeah. I has not seen, nor he heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man. Well, let's follow whoever he was or she took a stab at it. That's right. It's a liturgy of thanksgiving, a Eucharist for all eternity, thanking for God's mercy. So what do we have here? Well, we have a confrontation here between the two tabernacles and the liturgy of expiation. Anyone could go in. No, only a priest could go into the, like the story of the Benedictus, uh, when the Elizabeth's husband lost his voice. He, he was in the inner works of the temple doing his priestly duties, and he came out after doubting and couldn't speak. That's right. And so that's what he was doing. So that's the two tabernacles. It, he wasn't in the Holy of Holies. That was a very special uh, reservation for the great high priest and the liturgy of expiation. This is very interesting. Somehow, blood, the principle of life, washed away the old life, the former life, and the life that was, the blood that was used was animal blood as a substitutionary sacrifice. And that blood was used as expiation to wash over, like the woman at the Last Supper anoints Jesus' feet and dries it with her hair. She washed off the filth of the desert walk, and so on. Well, this expiation then is a role of the suffering servant of Isaiah uh, 42 through 54, mm-hmm. the four, four, four specific uh, hymns. So therefore, this represents both covenants. Furthermore, there's a very well-established comparison to be pursued further in Hebrews 10, 18, between the sacrifice of Jesus the essential action of his priesthood. Jesus became perfect as a priest in his death. So our perseverance is perfected in our death into your hands. We commend our spirits, O Lord, or as we pray in the, in the uh, first Eucharistic prayer, 
those who have died in the peace of Christ. Mm-hmm. We pray that they might enjoy the peace of Christ forever. And then, of course, the Levitical sacrifices. We might say that Hebrews is a very good New Testament commentary on the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Leviticus was the work of, was the book of the priests. One of the twelve tribes is Leviticus, and they didn't own anything. They didn't own property. The other tribes had to take care of them. The idea was their whole life is to serve that temple, keep the flame going day in and day out, keep the candles lit, keep the incense wafting heavenward as a symbol of Israel's prayer. So it be first of all to be shown that in all of this there is needed a purification, not of a temple building, but of the human conscience by the blood of Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is more efficacious and sublime than the purification sought by the liturgy of the earthly sanctuary. So what Christ has done with his precious blood, he didn't take away the the desert sand from our feet. Remember that story when he says to the Lord, I want to wash, when Peter said, when Jesus said to Peter he wanted to wash his feet, no, no, Lord, don't wash my feet, I'm unworthy and so on. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Mm-hmm. He would not be redeemed, meaning not his feet, but his soul, and not by water, but by his precious blood. And then Peter says, well, if you're going to wash my feet, then please wash everything. Do the, wash, whole, job. Do the whole job, which yeah. is, a, a Peter, again, a, 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 a wonderful well, exclamation. It really is. Peter's exuberance is always appealing. So the description of the tabernacle with its two compartments and the ministry of the great high priest for the festival of expiation, or Yom Kippur, fact of the suffering servant, we read, his life was asham, offered up in atonement, which is the sacrifice of Yom Kippur. So <clears throat> the, these, uh, the ministry of the great high priest and the t- tabernacle regard the places and the actions of the ancient Mosaic cult and is an exact counterpart of Hebrews 8, 1 to 5. So the deficiency of this institution indicated in Hebrews 8, 5 is underlined here in Hebrews 9, 8-10, notably regarding its effect, ineffectiveness. Hebrews contrasts repeatedly the great high priest, the victim, the sacrifice, the, the temple. The temple is no longer a tent or a building. It's Jesus. I will raise it up in three days. The high priest is the son of God. What he offered was not bullocks and lambs, mm-hmm. but the precious blood of the Son of God. So Hebrews, one of its great uh, purposes is to show the superiority of the ceremonies of Leviticus performed by Aaron in the Mosaic times, Moses' times, but with Christ a new priesthood uh, according to the order of Melchizedek has been established. And now that the temple is Christ himself, that's right. It's a temple that can't be destroyed anymore. Never be destroyed again. It can be, it can be disregarded in some ways by yeah. people. It could can be made, made ugly. True. But it it can't be destroyed anymore. That's right. And our baptismal theology means we are immersed into this, and we progress because that's a progressive preposition into or adverb whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's progressive, and as we intensify our life of faith this baptismal grace increases. But now let's read on in this Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But now Christ has come. 
He's the high priest of all the blessings which were promised to come. He's passed through the greater and more perfect tent, which is better than the one made by men's hands, because it is not of this created order. He has entered the sanctuary once and for all, taking with him not the blood of goats and bull calves, but his own blood, having won an eternal redemption for us. We have here three verbs, arrived, passed through, one, reminding us maybe a little bit of Julius Caesar in the German translation, weeny, weedy, wiki, but in the Latin translation, vini, vidi, vici. Vini, vidi, vici. Anyway, Hebrews 9, 11 to 12 is a fulfillment of all of this. So the internal bond between these concomitant actions, there's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to to assess it. It's like a a giant rugby or soccer game or football game. People running all over the place. And it's hard to concentrate on what we're trying to look at. All you can look at it is a spiritual combat being looked at from a distant mountain where Moses held his hands and the sign of a cross uh, extended to include all. So there's much going on here, and it's implied in the tenses of the verbs apparently chosen with some deliberation. He has passed through. The emphasis is on the principal verb. Now Christ has come, and that's ongoing. That's something began in the past and continues to this day. Christ has come into the temple after purifying it on Palm Sunday with his precious blood through Holy Week, He's in the temple on high, the celestial sanctuary. That's where we are headed. And the image of eternal life for the unknown author of Hebrews is to be a liturgist or a participator in the great liturgy of eternal thanksgiving. Christ is a priest forever in his prayerful aspect, not, not the sacrificial, which remains, its witness remains in the preservation of the sacred stigma of the glorious wounds retained in the resurrection. This access he prepares prepares for by the ultimate declaration of eternal redemption and eternal purification of consciences. If you want it, this is where to come. Come to me and drink and wash your head and your minds and your hearts. This great high priest of mercy has accomplished the view of obtaining these things for all the faithful. There's no sprinkling of blood here of sacrificial animals and their ashes. But far more effectively, this is the blood of Christ, who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to God through the eternal spirit. This can reach into even our deepest inner self so that we do service to the living God. So this section is a perfect commentary on these words. There's no need now to go into greater detail on these geographical terms of what the structure was and so on. The remission of sins announces well realized by the sacrifice of Christ and his heavenly oblation. Christ offered himself eternally. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. That's an eternal celebration of Eucharistic offertory. The earlier emphasis was on animals, but this is now the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So what the author has done here was to call into mind the ancient principle of Leviticus 17.11. The life of all flesh is in the blood. This blood works 
the effect of expiation of the old life, the poisoned, sinful life, and all that was a part of it. It is easy to prove to a believer that the blood of Christ is infinitely beyond all the intrinsic worth of bulls and goats. These are only symbols. But this precious blood is the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So this superiority of the blood of Christ is evident from a number of reasons for a believer. But even if one did not believe, but was trying to reflect what others believe, this is what it has to say. Firstly, the precious blood is a divine blood. It's the principle of the new life of a divine person who has been immolated, not as a sacrifice of brute animals, but as the Son of God. This has been infused into us by this merciful transfusion. Secondly, the person doing all of this is Jesus Christ, the anointed high priest of God. Thirdly, he offers himself knowingly, lovingly, freely, spontaneously on the altar of the cross. The animals didn't have any choice. Mm -hmm. They were herded into this. He is at one and the same time the great high priest and the victim. It was very easy to offer a substitutionary victim. But it's like we always say, put your life where your mouth is. Off your life in this regard. This is no substitute sacrifice in the celestial sanctuary. He is the original principal celebrant. Fourthly, he's an unblemished victim. All of these animals had to be very careful that they weren't lame or blemished in any way. All of these animals were imperfect. But Christ is the unblemished, perfect victim, infinitely beyond all corporal perfection as that of the ancient sacrifices, but it's totally spiritual. And finally, the precious blood of his humanity takes all of its value from the divine, sacred blood of the Son of God. This is who is totally, lovingly, and voluntarily pouring out his precious blood on the cross and it's offered to God for all of us as an oblation of God's mercy. So there's a lot of material here to digest and certainly would be a a mystic's delight to think of all of these things because it really is quite remarkable. In the two kinds of tabernacles and the two kinds of blood, there is summarized the infinite difference between the first covenant, which was done in a tent, renewed repeatedly in the brick temple, and this is which is done in the interior of Christ in his sacred heart, as we'll see. So he brings a new covenant as the mediator only so that the people who were called to an eternal inheritance may actually receive what they were promised. His death took place to cancel the sins that blocked on, blocked out that earlier covenant. The section is, therefore, is one of the most important aspects of this entire myster- mysterious document of Hebrews. We used to call it the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Right. It's not an epistle. This is a profound contemplation on the sacrifices of the old law. And most likely it wasn't Paul. Some say maybe Apollos, a friend of Paul's. Some say maybe the Jewish Pope, St. Clement of Rome. We don't know. But whoever wrote it was a genius of theology and, and biblical understanding. So... <clears throat> This section, therefore, is one of the most important we could ever have. 
it eliminates from a further perspective the Mosaic cult, and it, which but exalts Christ's sacrifice. The deficiencies of the old covenant, it wasn't bad, it just was sin was overwhelming. So the outpouring of the blood of animals was pure ceremonial and could only achieve a certain level of legal purity. Like if a guy said, oh God, this beautiful ceremony, I'm sorry for my sins, and does nothing about them. The sacrifice of Christ, the only begotten Son of God, consciously and willingly, is a redemptive action which abolished the sin. It didn't just cover it over. The table, uh, the, the altar of mercy, the table of mercy was covered over with gold to make it more precious than it was to indicate like we do in our chalices. We always need gold for that aspect that would touch the body of Christ. Idea being it's a precious metal and symbolically that's what our soul should be like precious gold purified in the fire of God's word or by the Holy Spirit. So the old covenant could acquire a certain legal purity. They were, I'm sure, very devout women and men who were deeply touched by these ceremonies. But they were promises. They were foreshadowings. They were an image of what was coming in the distant future. It's here now. Our danger is to be like the people of 2,000 years or 2,000 years before Christ with 2,000 years after Christ. And for many, it might seem it's some distant thing that once happened, once and for all, but is still alive in every Mass, every time the human heart turns to God and His mercy. Well, and it's interesting to think about, mm. too, those, those people so long before Christ, for whom everything was a promise, mm. and that, that was not completely clear, and yet they still stayed faithful. They, and for us... It has happened. Mm-hmm. Our faith is based on a reality experienced. Mm-hmm. Theirs was based on a hope mm-hmm. that they had yet been unfilled, and and so in a way that um, we're we're a, a little like those people who have touched Christ's side, mm-hmm. but blessed are those who did not see and still believe. believe. And that, so our our ancestors did. Our ancestors in faith did, many of them, believe without having seen. And prepared the way for the little remnant of the New Testament by their own sacrifices and goodness and so on. So all of this is, of course, mind-boggling, but it's a good time to re-enkindle a faith that in our case might draw cold. This has already been done, and all you've got to do is at the end of life is make an act of contrition. Well, that's really not 100% true. We are meant to try to die as we have lived, to try to live and die in the mercy of God. So the author does not refer to the sanctuary of Jerusalem, uh, namely that of Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant that disappeared from the Holy of Holies when the first temple was burned. So a lot of this is lost in an unclear history. Nor does he bring to mind at all the contemporary Jewish liturgy of his time. His description is quite free, a portrait in very broad strokes, borrowed from the Mosaic ritual, following the text of Exodus and Numbers, somewhat glossed over by the living tradition. This explains certain imprecise aspects of the epistle, which one might call inexactitudes, because there's a difference in the description of the furniture and the appurtenances and what's, 
what's that? At any rate, on the one hand, the legislative texts were only vague, and then on the other hand, the unknown redactor of this document had not intended to give any authentically technical description of the first temple or the second temple or the tent of meeting in the desert. Precision was not the main scope of this author. This is probably what we'll call today a fuller spiritual sense of the scriptures, like the Lamb of God, which was an animal. Then, in the fullest sense of the New Testament, he comes as the Son of God. So the author only wanted to facilitate the comprehension of this extraordinary event, the ceremonies that unfold in the old sanctuary, are now an image of what's happening in the celestial sanctuary. There is hardly any clear description at all of the liturgical furniture uh, used at this time. As he said, this is not the time to go into further details. <laughs> That's a great defensive mechanism. Yeah. I'm sure he probably didn't know. Yeah. And maybe they disagreed. From the literary point of view, the parallelism, parallelism is very rigorous. Uh, Hebrews 9, 1 to 14. Now Christ has come as the high priest of all, bl- all blessings, which were to come. He has passed through the greater and more perfect uh, tent. <clears throat> so the mastery of the redaction of this unknown author revealed to us here, as St. Thomas also pointed out, it is already evident that if these verses are carefully prayed over, there are five realities concerning the second tabernacle. Who enters it? But only the high priest. That's the first thing. It was only the high priest could go in. Secondly, the dignity and the condition of the place which, where he entered that is called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest once a year went in there. Thirdly, but Christ has now entered it in this case with his own blood as the sacrificial blood. And fourthly, when he entered, and that was only once a year, and fifthly, when he entered, and the reason was that it be in expiation for our sins. So all of these elements, the apostles, explain uh, all five of these. First, just who is this who enters? It's Jesus Christ. Secondly, the author points out the dignity of this inner sanctuary. It's Christ's own body. He makes clear even further that his condition was even more perfect. Thirdly, the author shows how he entered, and that is, in his own precious blood. Fourthly, when he entered for all time, which is like a year, a year in your sight, O Lord, or a thousand years, O Lord, in your sight, like an hour in the night. And fifthly, the author shows how he entered, because it was for the offering for the ignorance of the people of God, and not for his own, because he didn't have any. Mm. He was not ignorant. Anyway, this plan is almost overwhelming if we can believe it, meditate on it, contemplate it, and make some improvements in our own spiritual and personal lives. The plan is the following in this dynamic chapter. Firstly, the description of the earthly tabernacle, this is not the fault of the cultic means as the former covenant was imperfect but on the contrary, were splendidly endowed. They did the best they could. They decorated in gold, and they had all floor deleases hanging around, and all kinds of decorations and so on, as we see in verses 1 to 5. Secondly, the description of the respective ministry. 
those priests and the great high priest in the two compartments of the sanctuary, verses 6 to 7. The ordinary priests could go in the holies, but only the great high priest of the holy of holies. And that brings me back again to that faith photograph of Simeon, the high priest in Sirach 50. Look how splendid he was. He's like a pine tree with uh, going up through the uh, rainbow, which was the altar of incense and the fire, the eternal flame flashing against the jewels on his vestments. Then the parable of the liturgy, the symbolic teaching of which the Holy Spirit instructs us by this ritual, and it's twofold. On the one hand, heaven remains inaccessible. This is the only way in to go through the wound in Christ's side. You cannot ordinarily reach to God there in, in the old law. On the other hand, the, the consciences have not really been purified. They might have inspired some acts of contrition, but they did not remove the sin because of the dignity of the person offended which, who was infinite. And the human being is infinity and infinite only in the effect of his sins offending an infinite person. So the material rituals can only have carnal effects. People might have felt better. But this is not a feel-good religion. It's a religion asking for self-commitment. Christ penetrates into the heavenly sanctuary, in verse 11, and by virtue of his own sacrifice, verse 12. That's how he got that. It's his blood. It was his price of admission. He purifies consciences, in verse 13, allows us to reach God. In verse 14, the efficacy of all of this, redemption, therefore, on the definitive entry of the great high priest. This then leads us to Hebrews 9. This, we said there was Hebrews 6, 9, and 10. So as we read on in this, we read in verse 1, the first covenant had its laws governing a worship and a sanctuary, a sanctuary of this earth. So he's again further developing this very central part of the this seems to me to be the height of Christology, at least of soteriology, the theology of redemption. The structure here is a kind of a synthesis, a summary of the many ideas we've just presented. This difficult beginning reveals that the author established the foundations of his thesis. And this is what we read in Hebrews 7. The earlier commandment is thus abolished because it was neither effective no useful, since the law could not make anyone perfect. One who would not need to offer sacrifices every day, as the other high priests had to do, for all their own sins and for those of the people. He gets done this once and for all, because he was absolutely innocent, offering himself. That's Hebrews 7, 18 and 27. Hebrews 8, we have a high priest of this kind. He has his place at the right hand of the throne of the divine majesty. We say that he sits at the right hand of God and receives the same adoration in the Apocalypse as does the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian theology. He is the minister of the sanctuary and of the true tent of meeting. The original tent of meeting was in the desert. That then became the first temple. That then became the second temple. Christ now is the temple of the new law. So this is a tent of meeting which the Lord and not any man has set up. He prepares himself for the subsequent developments inherent in this 
in this entire matter. By speaking of a new covenant, he implies that the first is already old now. Anything old only gets more antiquated until in the end it disappears. Us old folks know that. (laughs) That's Hebrews 8.13. The first covenant had its laws governing a worship and its sanctuary for this earth. That's Hebrews 9.1. So, from the verb structures, the careful reader can read of the abrogation of the Mosaic ritual, the Levitical priesthood, these have now been surpassed. As the redactor of the document to the Hebrews had brought at the end of the preceding chapter, the imminent disappearance of the former religious organization. He pauses a moment now on the glories of the former covenant, having placed them in opposition with the supreme glory of the Christian covenant. Indeed, if the author describes so minutely this plan and the content of the sanctuary of ancient Israel, this is because God himself had determined these from whence the actual value of the symbolism derived. In fact, Hebrews will restore to the juridical present of the description, this is the new tent. It is the duty of every high priest to offer sacrifice and gifts and sacrifices. This is the essence of priesthood, to make an offertory. Christ does it with his own life. So the old justification depended on the law, Deuteronomy 6, 8, 2 Kings 17, Luke 1, 6. And to be justified, well, that depended on the law. Only the law was just. But the people who tried to observe it found it out of reach, nor could they make up for their own past sins. It's a bit of a mystery, then, why did God create it? It seems to me, like any teacher, the, the, these results are so magnanimous. It's hard to understand them. It's hard to uh, e- equip the mind to wrap around them. And I think that's what we try to do as a teacher. You try to break the material into nuggets and hopefully that they build on each other. And in the end, you have a, a, a skyscraper, meaning a, a body of thought that reaches into the heavens. But too, isn't it sometimes that that the law... it it's a structure that is meant to help human life go mm-hmm. forward, like grammar is in our mm-hmm. own language. Mm-hmm. So there are rules of grammar, mm-hmm. and you follow them. If no one followed them, we'd not be mm-hmm. able to communicate. Mm-hmm. But if you follow the grammar too rigidly, mm-hmm. then you sound you stuffy. sound stuffy, yeah, and stupid. people... Pedantic. Yes, you sound pedantic. Mm-hmm. And so it's... Um, the, the fundamental emphasis of grammar is is on human mm-hmm. communication, right. but it can go off course. Totally. It can go off the rails. You have too mm-hmm. little, and you have incoherence. Mm-hmm. You have too much, and it becomes overly rigid. Mm-hmm. So, so Christ mm-hmm. keeps trying, yeah. I think, to get us to focus mm-hmm. on on mm-hmm. the point, not the structure. Mm-hmm. That's true, and I think this is. Indicative, as you point out well, is a living language. New words are added, old words are dropped. Mm-hmm. Like in the computer area, era, a whole new language has developed. I remember they used to say when I was in grammar school, 75% of the English language is rooted in Latin. I, I can't imagine that's still true when I look at the size of this Webster's Dictionary here. Anyway, from the bird. The verb scriptures, 
the verb structures, the careful reader can show that is, these have all been abrogated and it is now the duty of the high priest, all of us, to offer gifts and sacrifices. The old justification was on the law, on the judgments, in Numbers 15, 1 Maccabees 2. This meant, therefore, precept, ordinance, positive law, or established custom. These were the roots of the pharisaical bewilderment of the multiplication of the prescriptions. Here there is understood prescriptions of a religious order, not structures and ceremonies. We have to be a little bit careful here, even in our literature, though in our age there's probably not much danger of this, or a pharisaical subservience to the rubrics. It can be excessive so that the mass could look more like a military performance than a religious ceremony. So, <clears throat> here there is understood prescriptions of a religious order and especially liturgical regulations. The term is frequently employed with a genitive signifying both the authority which establishes these prescriptions. For example, Romans one thirty-two, God's people knows what God's verdict is. Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are upright. They are joy for the heart. The commandments of the Lord are clear, light for the eyes. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah and Luke 1 were worthy of the sight of the Lord and scrupulously observed all the commandments and observance of the Lord. Romans 2. If a man who is not circumcised obeys the commandments of the law, surely that more than makes up for not being circumcised, which was an external and which was abolished it was no longer required after the Council of Jerusalem. Romans 8, he did in order that the Lord's just commands might be satisfied in us who behave not as our unspiritual nature, but as the Spirit now dictates. So it's going on now. This, this sacrifice, uh, this once and for all sacrifice is perpetuated, renewed, represented, made present again in our own time with every Eucharist and every time we turn to it in humility. So the Old Covenant certainly was endowed with the entire complexity of so many religious rules for the exercise of liturgy in the one and only uh, sanctuary. For example, Exodus 12. When you enter the land that the Lord is giving you as he promised, you too must keep this ritual. And when your children ask you, what does this ritual mean? You are to tell them in Exodus twelve twenty-five. this is the night we left and we were redeemed. Excessive liturgy can easily degenerate into a form of Phariseeism. So the emphasis is not only on the fact that the Old Covenant does not have its own sanctuary, but bringing out the more its liturgical value, its role for the centuries, <clears throat> needs to be brought forward in order to elaborate the existence of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, the world of the past is gone. The ancient type has no further meaning other than in its function as the, toward the anti-type. In other words, it, all of this was prophetically arranged to prepare us for the complete sacrifice of the Son of God. So this is the only case in the entire Old Testament where the term is taken in the sense of a local sanctuary. In other words, the only temple they had was the tent of meeting. 
So they had very precise measurements and all of these things. It's interesting when you see the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and the measurements given to us. And when you, for example, when you read Exodus, there are 40 chapters because 40 years and 40 and all those things. Ten of them are the commandments. Five of them are moral commandments. and uh, Excuse me, ten are moral commandments and ten are liturgical commandments. Now do this. And Moses did exactly as the Lord had commanded him to do. And that's the promise of covenant. That's Mary's fiat. In the construction of the new temple, she did just exactly as the Lord asked her to do. So, <clears throat> when the Lord brings you to the land, you are to hold this service. We read this in Exodus 13. When they did get into the new promised land and they were able to start, set up their own temple, they still had to observe this whole ritual. It's gone now. The tearing of the temple veil, the tearing of the high priest's vestments. So the emphasis <clears throat> is not necessary anymore on sanctuary and much pertinences and all of the sanctuary now is Jesus Christ. So this certainly has cosmic overtones. Josephus, the temple of Jerusalem, was meant to be the universe. That's what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to reflect the whole world. They had the greater lights and the lesser lights. They had stars on the on their uh, what do you call tapestry and moon and sun and all of these things, highly decorated. The great high priest officially there in the name of the whole human race. He was the son of Adam. On the vestments, there were figured cosmic elements. <laughs> On the temple fair, veil was an image of the universe. Some of the Greek fathers, like John Chrysostom, took this symbolism up and came to understand that the sanctuary was accessible to all, even to the Gentiles. They didn't realize that, but they made it cosmic. <clears throat> This was the interp an interpretation thought to be unacceptable because the underlying image was that of the desert sanctuary, the people in the desert. But if it could be read it in the light of the cosmic sanctuary, there was already here a, a kind of an implicit openness to what was yet to come. At any rate, there might be a play on Greek words cosmos and cosmikos. Women are to wear suitable clothes and to be dressed modestly and quietly 1 Timothy 2.9. The president must have impeccable character. So a lot of these inner ideas, in other words, the real sanctuary now is the human being. So there was all this totality in dress and manner in speech and conduct and so on, meaning kind of a spiritual uh, cosmos. Uh, anyway, the temple, this well-ordered, richly endowed temple applied very well to the sanctuary built by Solomon and later that of Herodias. But such terms could hardly apply to the primitive desert tabernacle. That was meant to include all of us and all of, all of history. So that all comes in verse 1 of this chapter 9. Verse 2, there was a tent. Now this is reminding us of the old tent of meeting. There was a tent comprised of two compartments, the first, in which the lampstand and the presentation were kept, and was called the holy place. This is not yet the holy of holies. This is where, as we've seen already, where the priests could go, keep the candles burning, keep a light shining in the night, and the perpetual flame, and so on. 
the description of the sanctuary is borrowed from Exodus 15. It's very close. They had been set up and organized an early tent. This was the Holy of Holies. In the neuter plural of Exodus 29 and uh, verses 30 and 39.1. In Ezekiel 44, no alien or uncircumcised in heart and body is to enter my sanctuary. The Levites are to be servants in my sanctuary. The Levitical priests did their duty in the sanctuary when the Israelites strayed from me, that they may all enter my sanctuary. So this was limited as as the holies, but the holy of holies, only the high priest could go. On entering in the tent, they would be on the left or at the south of the the seven branch candelabra, as we read in Exodus 20. All of this is minutely described in Exodus. In fact, the last five chapters of Exodus describe Moses doing in the tent of meeting in the desert, doing exactly as the Lord wanted him to do. Well, somebody made a study of this, even though we don't know the measurements, the actual length and width of some of these measurements. The estimate was the Ark of the Covenant would have weighed several tons. Mm. And you wonder how they picked it up and carried it all day and put it down at night and set it up again the next... Anyway, we don't know. It's, it's, it's more of a symbolic description than a real one. But beyond the second veil, this is at the innermost part, this is the Holy of Holies. And this most holy of places was separated by a veil, as we've seen in Hebrews 6, Exodus 26 and Matthew 28. It was called the second veil with regard to the fresh, which was found at the very entrance of the Holy of Holies. So there was a tent and a veil to get into the Holy. Then the Holy of Holies was the inner sanctum. Uh, There may be a hint here of two tents, while the Mosaic Sanctuary noted only one, but divided into two parts. However, the fact of situating the Holy of Holies behind, and this is the sole usage of the Greek expression, meaning local expression, succession, the second veil seems to create the confusion. Because it's hard, really, even my own limited knowledge of these structures, I began to wonder, I thought the sanctuary was this way or that way. Well, when you read Leviticus and Exodus, and then read Hebrews, you're going to see some differences, and that's why the author says, absolves himself, no need to go further into these descriptions. <clears throat> so then verse 4, which belonged the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, all plated all over with gold. In this were kept the gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's branch, which grew the buds, and the stone tablets for the covenant. So they put gold on it as to redeem it, to cover it, make it precious, as the Lord pours his precious blood on us to redeem us and make us as gold and silver are tried in the fire. So the people of God are tried in God's word. So the Vulgate and St. Thomas too identified this first object with a kind of burner, kind of standing on poles full of burning coal, Leviticus 16. This stands near the altar of holocausts. The great high priest will take this with him going into the Holy Holies on the great day of expiation. And this is Sirach 50. The high priest comes out and his vestments with their jewels 
sparkle in the incense fire, which looks like a cloudy day with a rainbow. He looked like a rainbow standing out against the cloud. So he would throw perfumed frankincense into the fire of the censer, as we did in benediction for years, and the smoke would issue from this <coughs> hid the propitiatory from his eyes. It was hidden this way. Anyway, this is kind of a lot of detail trying to compare Leviticus Exodus with this description in Hebrews 9 here, this description of the inner and outer tent and so on. However, it is difficult to admit that an object of relative importance would be mentioned uh, while nothing is said of the altar of holocausts. Furthermore, the author indeed seems to describe furnishings in the sanctuary. Lastly, the texts do not make precise ever if these were made of molten metals or gold or silver. Many authors would pluck one the afterward the altar of perfumes, one made of wood, plated with gold, and endowed with horns at the corners to show the strength of God. 2 Maccabees 2, Luke one eleven. Many authors provide for this a technical term. There does not seem to be much agreement whether or not this altar of perfumes was fixed to the floor or whether it was portable like the censer would be. So the censer is a sweet smelling that the high priest would be preceded in any procession. Well, it's similar where the old altar of incense would smell nice. This pleasant odor going up to heaven, which St. Paul used as a description of burnt out incense. We're meant to be to burn our lives out in the surface in the worship of God. So all the documents place this altar of perfumes in, in the sanctuary before the veil, which conceals the Ark of Witness. So you can see the details do not perfectly jibe. You can read all Exodus 30, Exodus 40, Ezekiel 41. <clears throat> this altar of perfumes was located somewhere between the chandelier and the table of the breads of propitiation, slightly ahead of it, as well as its localization in the Holy of Holies. This can only with great difficulty be attributed to an error or distraction that found its way into the into Hebrews. We, we just don't know. It's not a geog geography lesson. It's an interpretation of ancient symbols. There are authors who think this transposition is intentional. Uh, the author has in view visually the image of the ark and the symbol of the adoration of the people. He thinks of these by providing some kind of liturgical correction. So this is all technical matter for the uh, experts. Anyway, we could go on a bit more on all, uh, all of these descriptions, but we'll move ahead as best we can here. Some authors note that Hebrews does not oppose these exegetically, but follows rather the liturgical tradition, doctrinally authorized by the law. Furthermore, the symbolism has been able to contribute to the assigning this place on the altar of the perfumes, as it must be admitted that there is had in the heavens and all on the altar. For example, Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord God seated on a high throne. His train filled the sanctuary. Or Revelations 8, the Lamb broke the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Next, I saw seven trumpets, and another angel had a golden censer, a large quantity of incense, and the smoke of the incense went up into the presence of God. So the smoke of the incense was meant to be a symbol of 
Israel's prayer going up to God or God drawing up the prayer of Israel to respond to it. So logically, the the logical conclusion to all this would be that this would be the most holy part of the temple which served as the figure of the heavenly sanctuary. So instead of the whole temple representing the world, maybe just this inner part where the high priest would go once a year, draw the curtain on the altar perfumes, and this would have been placed there and would make up for the time a part of the sanctuary. In other words, the altar, the altar perfumes did not survive yes. as much as we can see. Anyway, the ark was made of acacia wood, Exodus 25, plated with gold, and this was what we understand by redemption, or being redeemed, being covered over with gold, was a way of hiding one's worthlessness and presenting the aspect of, of true value. Yes, well, and it makes me think as you um, as you talk about all of these symbols in the in the sanctuary and in the temple, how much our own churches are filled with symbols, and our liturgy filled with symbols that we just don't even know. We don't know what they are. We we don't maybe appreciate the depth of the meaning behind them all, or the reason why they're there. And uh, and and we're missing a, a lot, aren't we? To we not are, know. but I think too that we are also invited by God to read His scriptures. Speak, Lord, Your servant is listening. And in every age, we have found, or anyone that would listen to all of these reflections, must have some kind of a desire to understand more fully the scriptures that have been available to us our entire lives. There is always a deeper meaning. As Origen said, every revealed word is an ocean. With our baptism, we need to be immersed in it. And it's true that, that so much uh, of our understanding uh, changes as we grow in faith and mm. in maturity. Mm. Something we read and thought we understood when we were 20 uh, reads, and we understand it very differently when we're 50 or 60 this or 80 or 90. Yeah. And so, you know, you mm. it, it's good to keep at it over and over and over again, and gradually we're like, well, we hope. Uh, God sees us like flowers continuing to Take the to scriptures in hand each day, we're, we're told. And we were lucky to live in the Hubble era. Just imagine the leap of knowledge of the outer space that has occurred in our lifetime. Well, it's similar when we read these things and see them on a deeper level. A whole new and deeper and more sublime world is open to us. But the bottom line always is God's mercy. Yes. He's waited for millennia and wait for all of us to catch up as best we can. As best we can. And, and all of this continues to produce awe, praise, and, and faith, and more hope That's too, right. I think. So why don't we end here today, Father, with a prayer. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As as it was was in the beginning, beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Please pray, and amen. amen. Mary, Mother of the Church. Please pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God bless you, and thank you for listening. And thank you for teaching. Until next time, Father. We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.